Matthew 27, we'll begin there today. Growing up, I heard something from my parents quite often, eat your vegetables. Anybody else like that? Your parents tell you to eat your vegetables? Good parents are concerned that their children are getting the right balance of vitamins and minerals, and of course, most of those uh, good things come from vegetables. In fact, I remember my grandmother would say to me when I would turn up my nose at some new food or vegetable, she would say, how do you know you don't like it if you haven't tried it? She was probably just echoing things her grandparents said to her. I wasn't bright enough that back then to reply because a salad named after a hotel shouldn't be eaten by anyone. Don't know if you like Waldorf salad or not. I'm in the camp that does not. Of course, most children have already determined that broccoli shouldn't be eaten. And if you think broccoli is the most hated vegetable, you would be wrong. It's hard to believe. It's in the top 10 of beloved vegetables. I was shocked to learn that this week. There are many who hate broccoli. I think it's because it's rarely cooked correctly and it makes really bad leftovers. But broccoli is in the top 10 of vegetables people love. The most hated vegetable is the turnip. And I think I only tried them once, and I did not like them. And I'm going to tell you, it's in my notes in capital letters. I did not like them. I don't, and don't, and don't get me with the old line, well, you never had to buy turnips. I've had people try to slip that by you, you know. Well, if you just eat the way that I prepare turnips, then you would like turnips. I don't like turnips. I don't plan to ever eat turnips. I'm 52 years old. I am never going to eat turnips for the rest of my natural life. I will not eat them. I have a built-in natural animus for turnips. I don't want them. Not ever. Ever, ever, ever. Never. But that's just one vegetable. There are other veg vegetables I will eat, like broccoli. Now, maybe you are a vegetable person, and you know who you are. You'll eat nearly anything that grows. In fact, the more obscure, the better. Just cut it up, put it on my salad. Uh, I know people who put dandelions on their salads. And there are a few people like you. I think most people like certain vegetables and dislike others. I didn't really realize I liked a tomato until I had uh, a Whopper from Burger King. And then I said, this isn't too bad. Some people are somewhere in between. They like some, don't like others. That's a pretty good description of me. And then there are some who won't eat any vegetable at all. They just hate them. And I think this perfectly describes humanity's response to Jesus. There are some who love him. I hope that's you. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he saved us from our sins, washed us in his blood, made us clean, and given us new life. We have hope for eternity in heaven because of what Jesus did. We have peace with God because of him. But there are others. They take a different approach to Jesus entirely. Some of them are his enemies, actively hating him. Because they're on Satan's team. They do Satan's work and hope for Satan's success, even though he's losing. And he knows 
he will lose. Others are skeptical. They don't know what to think about Jesus. They don't really hate him. They don't love him. Still others, they see Jesus and those who follow him as foolish. A sideshow, circus. Jesus is the great ringleader and they don't take Jesus seriously or anything about personal salvation, the church, heaven, any of it. They don't take any of it seriously. It is, they say, the opiate of the masses. They're worldly minded. They live for now. They don't care about anything else. And so for Jesus, uh, to them, he's just an amusement, a distraction. These are unbelievers, the enemies, the skeptics, and the worldly. And in the final day of Jesus' life, they all march onto the grand stage, making an appearance at his trial. But let's not forget what's really happening here. These enemies and skeptics and worldly, they're the ones on trial. Jesus is not being tried by them. They're being tried by him. And in silence as a judge, he's sitting in judgment of them. And they reject him, but condemn themselves. Consider first, enemies reject Jesus as a criminal. His enemies are those who are, quote, right from the verse, against him, end quote. Look at, again, at Matthew 27, look at verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus, against him. The all-night trial ends with the Jewish leaders convening a council. And what they're trying to figure out is how they're going to execute Jesus. You see, Jesus is guilty in their minds of blasphemy. But blasphemy against Judaism is not a punishable offense in Roman law. The Romans really don't care whether Jesus is a blasphemer or not. So now they're going to take counsel together to figure out an appropriate charge that might get Jesus convicted in a Roman court. And on this, they are agreed. It said they took counsel against Jesus. They are the ones who will accuse him before Pilate. And so they hurl their invectives at Jesus. They think of him, letter B, as unfit for society. Again, look at verse 1. When the morning was come, they took counsel to put Jesus to death. And when they had bound him and led him away, they delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. This, this anger and hatred for Jesus is evident in their counsel. It is their hope that Jesus will end up dead at the end of the day. It's their delight if he would be killed as a Roman slave on a cross. And you see their hatred in the way they handle him. Notice the way the text says they treat Jesus. They bind his arms. They lead him. They push him away toward the governor, delivering him to Pilate's hands. This is how they treat those who they believe are unfit to live. They just don't want Jesus around at all. And my friends, this is how the enemies of God Think of him today. They hate the Lord Jesus so much 
that if he were living today, they would crucify him again. They curse his name. His name is now a byword, a swear word. There are words in our language that if you use, you would lose your job. You would lose your position in society. People would think of you negatively if you use certain words. One of them is not the Lord Jesus. In fact, in certain parts of society, the more you use his name as a cuss word, as a swear word, the better people will think of you. This is what people do who hate Jesus. They not only curse him, they accuse him. I find it fascinating that the American public believes in Darwinian evolution, but every time there's a storm, they hate God. For some reason, it's his fault. I thought you didn't believe in God. I, did, I thought you believed in Mother Earth. I thought you believed it was because of man-made global warming or climate change. But now you're going to shake your fist at God as if he's responsible for the hurricane that crushed your town? Well, I'm going to tell you, God is responsible. God controls the weather. God does what he pleases. He sits in the heavens. He's sovereign over, the, over man. But man doesn't acknowledge him. They accuse him. You read scholars today, some who even profess to be Christians. This is mind-boggling. And they say, if you believe in the God of the Bible, remember, professing Christians, if you believe the God of the Bible, particularly the God of the Old Testament, that God is a moral monster. Those are the words they use. Literally the words they use. They accuse him. So what's your testimony? I think in here, in a place like this, we would all say we love Jesus. I hope we do. I hope we all say, yes, we love God. We love Jesus. We love his word. This is who we are as Christians. But is that our testimony before others? Or are we guilty of cursing him and accusing him? The enemies of God, they put on their team jersey. You know what side they're on. We're wearing the jersey of Jesus. I don't know what number's on the back. Maybe it's in the shape of a fish, right? Maybe it's the first letter of his title, Christos. It looks like an X in English. Some people mistakenly think Xmas is Xing Jesus out of Christmas. That's just replacing Christ with Christos, the first letter of Greek of his name. But you, you see what I'm saying. They, 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 there are people who say, yes, I am with Christ. I have Christ. I wear his jersey. But maybe sometimes we act as if we don't. Maybe sometimes the words that come out of our mouth maybe make it seem like we're more on this team who's against him than we are. And our testimony is wrecked because of that. Now, not only do the enemies of God reject Jesus as a criminal, 
Number two, skeptics reject Jesus as foolish. You see, the skeptics are those who are not sure what to make of Jesus. Here's Jesus. It says in verse 11, he stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He said, I don't know who you are. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Thou sayest, your words, not mine. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Here's Pilate, Pilate meeting Jesus in a very awkward moment. At least it is for Pilate. Jesus is being presented to him as a criminal. This is the first Pilate has ever met Jesus. And he, he's the law. And he has an obligation now to render a verdict. He's in a position to determine Jesus' fate. And Jesus doesn't share anything or very little about himself with the Roman governor. He acknowledges that he's a, his kingship in a backhanded way. You say I'm a king. You're, you said it. John's gospel provides us more of the interchange between Pilate and Jesus. He didn't just answer these words. Um, Matthew is condensing this part of the story down to just this little bit that Jesus doesn't respond to the accusation. But Jesus does talk about Pilate, to Pilate about other things. And, and, and you look at Pilate now, and he's looking at Jesus, and he can't figure out, this is letter B, skeptics, they can't figure out how Jesus fits into their culture. Pilate says to him, aren't you listening? Don't you hear how many things they witness or they, or they testify against you? And he answered, two, never a word. So the, much so the governor, he's amazed. He says he marvels greatly. Jesus refused to defend himself against the priest's accusations. Pilate is so amazed by this, he questions Jesus, not even as much about what they're saying, but about his silence to their accusations. Don't you hear what they're saying about you? How can you refuse to answer them? Let me tell you, that's weird. In Pilate world, he's never seen this before, and he never saw it again. Pilate standing there, the priest's the religious leaders, the Sadducees, are standing off to one side, and they're accusing Jesus. They're charging him with crimes against the Roman government. And Jesus just stands there and doesn't speak. And I think to myself, this is kind of a strange way to interact with skeptics, isn't it? I mean, Pilate really is skeptical of Jesus. But Jesus will not give a defense of himself. If you go to that passage in John, you don't need to turn there, but it's in John 18 and 19. Jesus refers to his kingdom. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then were my, would my servants fight? So in, in a sense, in John 18, 36, Jesus is saying that he is a king. It's just not an earthly kingdom, not in the sense that Pilate is thinking about a kingdom. And then Jesus says to Pilate, to this end I was born to bear witness of the truth. So Jesus refers to a, a kingdom, not a kingdom like Pilate would think of a kingdom. Then he refers to truth, and it's certainly not truth the way Pilate would think of truth. Anyone on the side of truth hears me, Jesus says, clearly putting Pilate on the other side. There's no doubt here, by the way, that Jesus is presenting the first bits, the first tidbits of the gospel Truth to Pilate, 
You know, Jesus is actually saying to Pilate, you should stop talking and listen to me. You've been listening to them, but you should listen to me. And Pilate, he's not really willing to do that. In fact, his answer back to Jesus is, what is truth? What's really true? And you know, Pilate's skepticism is kind of where he remains because it says in chapter 19, in verse 1, that he scourges Jesus. Let me tell you, he called him an innocent man in chapter 18 and verse 38 of John but then he scourges an innocent man in chapter 19 and verse 1. All that skeptics do wonder at the strangeness of Christianity. Can I tell you that? They, they think we're the weirdest people around. They see us as so different from their own culture. And friends, if you think about it, we do have our own culture. I've heard people try to justify their behavior by saying it's just culture. Well, culture is just the word, how people live. That's what culture is. We have culture in the southeastern United States that's actually different from the culture in the northwestern United States. It's different from New England. You go to other countries, they have other cultures. They do things differently. It's just how people live. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's not necessarily right. I had a man say to me on the phone a few weeks ago, well, that's our culture. Oh, so I should agree with it now because that's your culture. It doesn't make your culture right. In that case, in the case I was talking with him, he was being very unloving. Well, let me tell you, there is a biblical culture. There is a Christian culture, and it's not 1950s Christianity. Don't get that in your mind. We do have a culture. Culture is how people live, and how we live is how Christ says we should live in his word. Christians live like most other people in mundane matters. I put on pants this morning. I didn't put on shorts. I could have. I, I didn't put on a t-shirt. I could have, but I put on clothes. That's how people live. Be kind of strange if I wore a bathing suit to church, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that shock you just a bit? <laughs> Pastor has finally lost his mind. He is really, he, something's happened. Up, he's gone. <laughs> we may never get him back. We may not want him back after the whole bathing suit incident. No, we live like other people in mundane things. We brush our teeth, I hope, right? We comb our hair, I hope you do that. You, you buy a car, you have a, you have a house, you have a job. I mean, these are mundane things. We eat food, sometimes eat good food, sometimes eat turnips. I mean, we all have things we do. But we live differently from most other people in the important things. We live for a world we cannot see. That's different. That, that really is different. We love a Savior that we've never seen. That's really different. Think about it this way. You gave up your Sunday. You, you all gave up your Sunday for Jesus. And do you want to know how different that is? Let me tell you, the vast majority of people in our community didn't do that. I, I leave my home on Sunday morning, and sometimes my neighbors are out in their yard. And I, and I smile and I wave and I say, headed off to work. <laughs> they know what I do. Headed off to work, headed to the office, hoping someday they'll join me here. And I, I'm dressed kind of like I'm dressed now. 
sometimes in the summertime, they're outside, they're in shorts and a t-shirt, playing with the water hose. Talk, their kids are running around with squirt guns or they're boys, so it's all some sort of weapon, you know. Um, they're running around and there's a different culture on display. They have their culture and we have ours. And this causes skeptics to wonder, why would you do that? Or, or they look at our lives and they do certain things that we don't do and they say, why wouldn't you do that? When I joined the United States Marine Corps, I was 17 years old. And I made the Lord a vow that I wouldn't do two things. I'm not going to drink alcohol and I'm not going to swear. And with that vow, I immediately set myself apart from 99% of the other Marines that I was around. Let, let me tell you, the military has done studies of the different branches. There are five of them. We now count the Coast Guard. Well, actually, six. We have the Space Force now. You forget about them. They're out there, right? I guess someday they'll be more important than today. Today, it just feels like science fiction, but may, maybe it'll be important in the future. But you've got those six branches of government or, or of the military, and, and in those six branches of the military, they've done a study of, of all of the vices that the military is involved with, all, all the problems with addictions, all the problems in families, and all, all these kinds of things. Do you know where the Marines rank? We like to be best at everything, right at the top. They're just, they're just the worst. And I had a man say to me, I was holding a loaded weapon in my hand. And he said to me, because I refused to swear, he said, I don't think if we got into a firefight that you would defend me. And I thought, I'll shoot you right now and then you'll see. You know, That was what was going through my mind. I remember I was on the back of a truck and I was looking at him holding my weapon. You know, we we're all holding our weapons and I'm going, I'll just shoot you right here and then you'll know. I don't mind shooting people if I have to. I'll shoot you to show. But because I wouldn't use a bad word, he said, I don't believe you'd defend me. Because I was different. That's what Christians are. And because they don't hate us, they don't even hate God, but they don't, they don't love us either. They don't accept us. What they do is, you know, God's enemies, they want us out of society. Skeptics are saying, how do you fit into this society? How, how do you fit in? And, and we might keep up technologically. We might keep up socially. We might keep up physically. We might even keep up spiritually. The divide in our culture between us and them is growing. There are more skeptics today than ever before. And, and I think for many of them, we might as well just all be Amish. No, that's just kind of how they're looking at us. And I'll give you some examples of that. The way I have a worldview and the way I approach science is totally different than the way they approach science. The way we rear our children is different. The, the, our sexual ethics are different. Our approach to moral issues is different. The way we think about those things is so different. And the skeptics, they're just standing back saying, I just don't know. I, I'm not saying we should, we should harm you. That's what God's enemies do. But I, I just don't know how you fit in here. And that's where Pilate is. The skeptics reject Jesus as foolish. 
Well, God's enemies say he's unfit for society. The skeptics say maybe he doesn't fit into culture. But do you know, we come to this last group, the worldly, and they just reject Jesus, number three, as ridiculous. Worldly people think of Jesus entirely in worldly terms. I want you to look over at Luke chapter 23, and I want you to look, verse 6, Pilate, at, at the end of this trial, with, with Pilate and the, the priests accusing, this is immediately where this picks up. He hears from the accusers, from these enemies of Jesus, that Jesus is from Galilee. Jesus isn't speaking much. He can't pick it up from any kind of, of dialect that Jesus is saying. He hears he's from Galilee, and he goes, oh, you're from Galilee. And he asks, is this man a Galilean? And it says in verse 7, as soon as he knew he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was himself also in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, now Herod's really excited. We're going to have a party. This is awesome. Jesus is coming to see me. He was desirous, verse 8, to see him a long season because he'd heard many things of him. What are the things he'd heard? Well, he walks on water. He makes blind people see. He makes lame people walk. He can raise the dead. And so Herod wants to see a miracle done by him. And then he questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests, they're still standing there, still accusing him vehemently. Herod was wrong to see Jesus. Glad He was glad to see Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Now, you need to know something about the Herodian dynasty. As soon as you read Herod here, you get confused, don't you? I mean, I get confused. Okay, I always have to go back because I'm not a Herodian scholar. I'm not big on the intertestamental books and the Idumeans and all of this. So I had to go back and reread this. If I have to do that, I'm guessing you probably do too. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have it clear in your mind, but I do. Uh, the Idumeans, where Herod is from, they're descendants of Esau. They're Edomites. Immediately, that means they're non-Jews, right? They're not from Jacob. They're from, they're from Esau. Now, the descendants of Esau, because of what happens in the Maccabees, the intertestamental period, the descendants of Esau here get involved in some governmental positions, and Herod's father is kind of an important mid-level governor kind of thing in the Roman world, in the Roman Empire. Herod, the great, he comes to power about middle of the first century BC, maybe the last part of that. He's the one who killed the little boys around Bethlehem when Jesus is born. That's Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had four sons. And when he had when he died, Palestine was divided in three ways. One of the sons is kind of ignored. But there are two that you need to be aware of. There's Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. And this is the one that Jesus met. Herod Antipas. That's this Herod that we're talking about here. He's the son of Herod the Great. And then you also have Aristobulus. He's a son of Herod the Great. And his son becomes Herod Agrippa. So Herod Agrippa I, he's the one who beheads James. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And the great-grandson of Herod the Great, Herod the Great, uh, Herod Agrippa's, Herod Agrippa I's son is Herod Agrippa II. He's the one who tries Paul. So you get that? You have, you have the son of Herod the Great, Aristobulus. He has a son, Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa has a son, also called Herod Agrippa. The first Herod Agrippa beheads James. 
James II, Herod Agrippa, is the one who tries Paul. All the other Herods are out there. There's a bunch of other ones out there. But these are the Herods you really, really need to know. Now, this is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. He's, he's an evil guy. He's not a Jew. He doesn't love the Jews. He doesn't love the word of God at all. He doesn't love God at all. And he's entirely worldly. He's living entirely for the pleasures he can derive from his position as a leader of the Jews. Herod Antipas is a convert, at least in some ways, to Judaism in order to be a king of the Jews, but he's not really a Jew in the sense of a follower of Old Testament uh, law. His character is he's interested in maintaining political power, and he has no interest in spiritual things. So the moment he hears Jesus is coming, he's not saying to himself, I can't wait to listen to Jesus preach. Right? I just can't wait. When Jesus comes, he's going to preach. And the way he preaches, he says things like nobody else. I can't wait to hear Jesus preach. That's not how worldly people are at all. Do you know something? This might seem strange to you. Worldly people don't like preaching. They hate preaching. In fact, uh, we even use it anytime a person gets even a little bit lecturous in our society. You going to preach to me? They don't like preaching. And what you have here is Jesus standing before Herod, and, and he's, he's thinking, I'm going to see a miracle. He wants to see Jesus perform. It's a circus act. Do something magical. You, you, know, you know, here, let's go find somebody you can heal. Do something marvelous so I can watch this. And he questions Jesus. Jesus isn't talking. Jesus isn't even responding to Herod. And, and, and he questions Jesus as if Jesus owed him his obeisance. As if Jesus should bow before Herod. As if Jesus should worship Herod. And all this time, these scribes, they've got nothing better to do but to go from one office in Jerusalem to another to accuse Jesus. They're just the talking heads. Accuse, 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 accuse. And the whole time, Jesus just is stoic, silent. And when they can't get Jesus to speak, he's not any fun. So you look at verse 11. Herod with his men of war set him at naught. Let her be. They make sport of Jesus for their own fun. They mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. This is now the spectacle of horror. It begins realizing Jesus won't perform a miracle for them he, be, he becomes an object, object of ridicule. They treat him as if he's nothing. They, they don't even see, in that culture and society, they don't even recognize basic human rights. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but everywhere Christianity has become kind of uh, the part of the mindset of a people, basic human rights have become very important. It's not always been true. There have been a lot of examples where that wasn't true. American slavery is a good example of that. And that, that was a horrible violation of people's basic human rights. But, but uh, women's rights have been elevated through Christianity, through true Christianity. Uh, other nationalities and ethnicities through true Christianity have been elevated here. Here you have a man in their culture, and they, in Roman culture, they didn't see human rights like we do. And slaves... And people from outside the Roman Empire 
were, were basically nothing. And here, here, men, they're treating Jesus as if he's nothing. They put on him a royal robe. I, I don't know who suggested it. Maybe it was Herod. Maybe it was one of the soldiers. He, he's supposed to be a king. Um, this is the accusation that the scribes and priests are making to Pilate. This must be the accusation they're making to Herod. That Jesus is the king of the Jews, or he claims to be the king of the Jews, and therefore he is no friend of Caesar's. And so they put a royal robe on him, and that's part of their false worship of Jesus. And by the way, it's so interesting because, because here you have Herod Antipas' father who said to the, to the Magi, tell me where Jesus is so I can go and worship him. And here you have his own son, Finding Jesus now, finally. He sees Jesus and he worships him, but it's false worship. And they ridicule him. This is how worldly people think of Jesus and his followers to this day. They see the world as something to be gained. They see this life as all there is. They treasure fame, wealth, prosperity. How different from Christians. They ridicule us because we would rather give it all up. We are the ones who understand. You gain the whole world, lose your own soul, you've got nothing. I'd rather give all that up. I've got another world to be gained. It just crossed my mind this week. Was at camp, they had um, some lady got up and sang, and then everybody applauded. It's fine, you know. I'm 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 not anti-applause, you know. Um, I prefer if there's not an applause because to me, we're not saying you did a good job. It's praise be to God, right? To God be the glory. And then it got me thinking. That, that started me, and for the first like five minutes of the guy's sermon, I was thinking about this. <laughs> I know how you people do, because I do it too. You know? So you are in the middle of your grocery list. Come back. And I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, all the accolades that man can give you. Jesus said, you have your reward. I, I read a verse this week that was just so challenging to me. It was a verse, and I read it in a modern version, and I really liked the way it put it. It said, strive to live in obscurity. How anti-world is that? The world today is all about filming something and putting it online. Maybe you can get your 15 minutes of fame or infamy. I mean, I, mean, I think most of what's on TikTok and all those other social media sites is more infamy than fame. You make a, uh, an idiot of yourself in front of the world and... Everybody laughs at you, and somehow you think that's good. But you, you think about this. The world sees, they say, we want to gain it. We say, no, we want to lose it. My life's not about here. It's about there. Vernon's there. He, he had this little bit of time. Little 90 years is nothing. 92, 93, it's nothing in comparison to eternity. Take a yardstick out, take that little first mark, and say, okay, that's life, eternity. You realize how long that is? Where a, in, in the in kingdom of Christ, a person who's 100 years old would be considered a baby. Just a child. Vernon was a child when he died. That's the way they'll look at it. 
eternity is so long. This life is nothing. We, we, and, then, and then to treasure fame and wealth, what do we treasure? Well, hopefully we treasure Christ. Hopefully we treasure life with him, walking with him. The, the, the blessing of freedom of religion in our country is that I can go about my business loving God and loving Christ and speaking of him. I can do all of those things in this, in this culture. And there's nothing anybody can do against me because of the rights that my government has given me to do that. They call them human rights or inalienable rights, whatever you want to call them. But I'm going to tell you that's special in the history of the world. I love it because now I can live my life, come to church on Sunday and fellowship with God's people and enjoy that relationship with the Lord. This is why Paul says in Corinth, when I came to Corinth and I preached the gospel, that there were people there who thought I was a fool. They ridiculed me. My life was made a circus act. That's how he describes himself. I, I'm, a, I'm a circus act for other people. They, they ridiculed him. Because the world, they ridiculed Jesus. And it makes me wonder, as part of application, why do we then love the world? I'm not talking now about the ball of the earth or even created things. I'm not talking about your car or your house or your clothes. I'm, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm, I'm talking about why would we even love that out there that hates our Lord or that thinks of him as being an idiot and a fool and stupid. Why would we want to be around that? Why would we want any of that in our lives? The enemies of Jesus, they say he's unfit for society. The skeptics of Jesus, they don't know where he fits in. The worldly, they just ignore him. He's just an object of ridicule. But what of us? We love him. And you look at this story of these three people standing trial over Jesus. And as I said at the very beginning, you then realize what's really going on. Jesus is standing back and he's just watching them. He's looking in the eyes of those Sadducees and he's watching them. And he's remembering. And he's looking at the eyes of Pilate and the eyes of Herod and into the eyes of all of those soldiers. And he's watching them. And one day, they will all stand before him. And he'll see him again. And now he'll be the judge and not them. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be people who love you. We want to have none of this in our lives. We don't want to be associated with the enemies of Jesus. We don't want to be associated with people who are skeptical of you. We don't want to be around people who are worldly-minded. We don't want that in our lives. But Lord, why do we tolerate it then? Why do we allow it? That's part of our culture. Why do we tolerate it? Maybe, Lord, there's someone here who is your enemy or maybe is skeptical of you or maybe is so worldly-minded. 
they just ignore you, just overlook you. You're just something, form of amusement to them. Lord, in your love, as you loved us and gave us our salvation, would you love that one and give him salvation? Would you reach down and open her heart and draw her to Christ? Before I finish praying, I want to ask you first two, two questions today, real simple. Number one, do you know Jesus? Do you love him? Or do you identify as an enemy, a skeptic, or worldly? Be honest with yourself. Listen, you don't even have to raise your hand. I, I don't care about all that. In your heart right now, you just talk to God. Or be honest. Who are you? Are you an enemy of God? Are you skeptical of him? Or have you become so worldly-minded? You ignore him. You think he's amusement. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about that, take this moment and go to him and say, Lord, I need to be saved. I need to be changed. Now, maybe you're here, you say you're saved, but for some reason you've been tolerating some aspects of these three groups in your own heart. You've been tolerating the blasphemy of God in your heart. I can't even imagine, but you've been tolerating it. You've been tolerating skepticism. You've been willing to listen with a real open mind to people who teach falsehoods about Jesus. Maybe you're here you say, Pastor, I'm so much in love with the world, I don't even know how to get out of it. Now for you, I do want you to respond. If God's Spirit was speaking to you, you're one of those people who really are you're struggling. You're struggling with skepticism. You're struggling with worldliness. You're struggling even with some animosity against God. I want to pray for you. Anybody like that? Would you slip up your hand? Real quick. I'm, we're not going to embarrass you, but I want to pray for you. Anybody willing to admit to that? I know that's hard to admit to, but boy, I'd love to pray for you. It'd be the first step to spiritual recovery. It'd be just admitting that this is where you're at. Lord Jesus, take our thoughts now, consecrate them. Help us to think rightly about you. Help us not to be standing with all those others, but to stand beside you in this hour of trial. To stand up and say, yes, you're trying my Savior, and I'm with him, not with you. I'm not with the enemies. I'm not with the the blasphemers. I, I'm not with the skeptics. I'm not with the worldly. I'm with Jesus. I stand with him. Help us to be like that. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Pianists will play a hymn of invitation. You go to the Lord as you come.